Welcome to this deep track edition of Shout Out Patriots. Today, I am pleased to have Dyke Hewish with us. Mr. Hewish is an attorney and he's defending several J6 demonstrators who have been accused of committing criminal offenses during the Stop the Steal rally in January of 2021 that was held in Washington, D.C. Although Mr. Hewitt cannot speak directly about the status of any of his clients, he can speak directly to a number of questions I think we all have regarding the FBI and DOJ's criminal procedures in prosecuting J6 defenders. Mr. Hewish, welcome to our program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk to you. I want to start by asking you, what is your experience in this particular area? Um, I've been a criminal defense attorney now for 28 years. I was a DA before that for a couple of years in, in Orange County and San Diego, but I have been primarily a criminal defense attorney since 1995 or so. Um, I practice exclusively as a criminal defense attorney in state and federal courts and have handled matters from New York to Texas to California and all types of different uh, federal matters as well as locally here in California. So I know that you can't speak directly about any of your clients, but I am kind of curious. Since you are in California and your clients were arrested in Washington, D.C., how did they find you? Did you find them? Tell us, how does this process actually work? Well, generally as a lawyer, you don't try to reach out to people. That's a, a bit inappropriate. And, and most of the people that come to me usually know my reputation, know where I come from, and, and just approach me. Uh, and I, and I, I don't want to sound boastful. I think I have a decent reputation for handling federal cases. And it's nice to have somebody that's here where you can talk to that can handle your case in D.C. Uh, so that you're not always having to travel to D.C. to talk to your lawyer. Absolutely. So one of the concerns that we are hearing, the FBI and the DOJ have become weaponized against conservatives. Do you see it that way? I, I really, look, we can go clear back to the, the beginning with our founding fathers to kind of analyze this problem. And what we can start with is the understanding that when our founding fathers divided the government into three separate branches, they knew that there might be a potential for abuses by somebody somewhere. And so we make sure that the executive branch, which is where the DOJ belongs, never has the ability to do more than temporary activities because they require a court and ultimately a jury to certify their actions. You could talk about the days of Hoover when perhaps he was weaponizing the FBI. You can talk about complaints that people have. But I will tell you, I have been in criminal law for all these years. I've handled maybe 10,000 cases. Judges try very hard to make sure that that third branch of government doesn't allow these type of things to happen. Let me add one more little thing. I've known a lot of FBI agents in my, in my life, and there are some exceptional agents, ones that work very hard to uphold the law in every way they can. And there are some pro probably some that are maybe a little bit less exceptional, if we will. But weaponizing, I think that's more of a political thing that people say than a reality. Uh, I think people want it to be a reality because they want to believe something. But I think that the courts, they make sure this doesn't happen. 
Okay, but when someone's home is being raided by the FBI over a diary, I'm talking about James O'Keefe, or someone's home is being raided by the FBI over a shoving incident at an abortion clinic, I'm talking about Mark Hawk in Pennsylvania, but this same FBI has yet to raid anybody's home who have vandalized some 35 churches and nearly 60 pro-life centers, it seems the FBI has been weaponized to go after conservatives, at least to me. I, I, I hear that, and, and being a, a fairly conservative, I like to view myself as a, as a Reagan kind of guy with a, with a Theodore Roosevelt kind of mindset. I, I hear what you're saying, but let me, let me tell you about some things that make that not completely accurate. For example, the FBI can only arrest you and hold you for 72 hours. After that, a judge is going to have to take over. So the worst thing an FBI agent can ever do, ever, is arrest you and hold you for 72 hours. That's it. That's the entire power that the federal government has in terms of holding a person. Now, can they cause you some discomfort by, by raiding your house? Well, that requires a warrant, and that requires a judge to look at it. Now, you would say to me, is not a warrant just as good as the evidence that a FBI agent gives to a judge? My answer is, yeah, that's true. That is true, which is why you have me. Guys like me, the men and women who practice criminal defense, are the only job mandated in the Sixth Amendment, or excuse me, in the, in, the, in the Bill of Rights in the Sixth Amendment to exist. In other words, the president is mandated, the vice president is mandated, and my job is mandated. I am a constitutionally mandated job. And my job is to make sure when people get out of line that I'm in front of a judge calling them out on it. So, yes, can somebody go astray? Can a police officer do more? Yes. But they have to face the likes of someone like me. And I'm telling you, we're not going to let them off the hook. We're not. And judges don't let them off the hook. I'm there all the time. And I have seen many an FBI agent and a U.S. attorney take it in the shorts from a very stern and very forceful district judge. Well, you know, we interviewed Sharona Bishop. She's a mother who lives out in California. And the FBI and some local police officials ended up at her house and knocked on her door, then used a battering ram to get through that door. And it was unlocked already, by the way. And they came in with their guns drawn. They took all of her camera equipment, her computers, her storage drives, and walked off with it. She wasn't exactly sure why they were even there. They said they had a warrant because of some wire transfer charges, and that was a year ago, over a year ago now, and she still has not been charged. She still does not know anything about the wire fraud charge. The FBI still has all of her equipment. She can't get any of it back. She doesn't have the money to sue to get it back. I understand what you're saying, that a judge is there to hold them accountable. Now, either this can't be totally true or Sharota Bishop is telling a story that doesn't really exist. No, it, it, it's, it, it, by the way, I, I fight these guys all the time. So I don't want to sound like I'm on, you know, just on one side or the other here. Because uh, I, I don't, let me tell you, nothing is more frustrating than when, when the FBI comes in or the local police come in and they seize your computers because they have a warrant because they suspect something and you can't get it back because it goes into evidence. And you've got almost no mechanism short of trial to get it back. Uh, that's a frustrating rule of law that we have that says evidence must be preserved. 
part two of that question that you say is, you know, they go in with guns blazing. And it's an interesting problem that I see all the time. But let me tell you something. The FBI and local police departments, when they issue warrants, they come in with the expectation that it's going to be problematic, that they're going to face somebody who's doing something dangerous. Whether that's right or wrong after you look at it, most of the time you can say they would have gone peacefully. But in the moment, I think a lot of them are trying to follow very strict protocols that protect uh, their well-being. Now, there's one more thing that you may have asked me in that, but you didn't, didn't ask me, and that is, what's the business with selective prosecution or selective investigations? And this is a place to which I don't think I have a whole lot to say because, A, I'm not the prosecutors that are choosing this, and B, I'm not sure I understand why it is they choose one case over another. But I can answer it this way. You probably won't like this, but I'll answer it this way. Everybody on the freeway is usually going faster than the speed limit, and somebody gets pulled over. I don't know why. Maybe it's because you're in a red car. Maybe it's because you're in a silver car. Maybe it's because they don't like Jeeps. But it, it appears to me that prosecution is often sometimes the spin of the wheel. And I, I don't have an answer for that other than to say it happens, and it's frustrating. It's frustrating. Well, one of the questions I did have, Mr. Hewish, was the question of what process does it take for the FBI to actually raid a home? Do they have to go before a judge? Can you tell us how that works? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. One of those ones we spend an entire semester in law school studying, then an entire career trying to understand. But I'll answer it this way. The general process is kind of one of two paths. The first path is if you have what we call an exigent circumstance. There's, there's something going on. So imagine a bank robbery is going on and the FBI somehow is involved in there. The police are involved in there chasing the guy and he runs to his house and he goes inside of his house and he's there inside his house. Well, obviously you can't go in your house and when you're in the middle of a chase from a bank robbery and say, ha, I'm in my house, I'm safe. They're allowed to continue the chase even beyond the borders of your, of your safety of your home when it's, when it's an emergency or something that's happening as it goes. That, that makes total sense. We all understand that. The second one is much more complex. This is what we call the warrant process. And what happens there is the agent or agents uh, or police, again, whatever one we're, we're dealing with, they have to create a list of, of what they are going to say are facts that they believe that they have to show and back up their investigation and what they found. So say hypothetically, uh, they have three witnesses that say they saw a guy with a gun. They, 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 they believe they're credible for whatever reason. They, they talk to him, they interview him, and the guy goes into his house with his gun. They, 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 they probably just can't go in and seize the gun. They would, and they would have to show a judge that not only does he have a gun, but it was somehow illegal and they needed to go get it. And at that point, they go to a judge with an affidavit. They fill it out. The judge reads it, reviews it. The judge can ask questions if, if he, he or she wants. And they then evaluate it based upon the rules of law. This is a pretty complex science. There's a lot of rules that kick into play. And the judge will then evaluate them. But here's the kicker. Nobody's there to challenge those facts. The FBI can say what they want in those facts. And you might say, well, that's too much power for them because the judge could be fooled into granting a warrant. I guess that's true. But here's the thing. 
once they're in the house, whatever they take or whatever they do is ultimately going to become subject to the scrutiny of me and a judge. And eventually, they're going to have to put up or shut up because if they have a bad warrant, then the evidence is going to be thrown out. And if they have a bad warrant that was so extreme, then they're going to end up with a civil suit. And those civil suits happen. And, and trust me, lawyers aren't afraid to sue the FBI or the police for bad warrants or bad arrests. We do it all the time. And we win. Um, but there's a process. And now I must say this. In all my years of looking at warrants and all my years of doing this, very, very rarely have I ever seen anything that I think is abusive. It may be mistaken. It may be misguided. They may have been just fundamentally wrong and, and, and got the wrong house like I saw once where they literally just got the wrong house. But it wasn't because they were trying to get the wrong house. They just made a mistake. And, and we take them to task on that. But for the most part, I think that the hardworking people of law enforcement try hard to get it right. And I really do believe that. Um, the stuff you talk about is sometimes the very tip of a, some small iceberg far away. But the routine, the drug dealers or the, the bank fraudster that ripped off grandma and 2,000 other grandmas with all their money, they're very careful and very methodical before they ex execute those warrants. Well, let's take a look at Mark Hawk out in Pennsylvania. Now, here's a pro-life pastor whose home was raided, and according to his wife, some two dozen FBI agents come to his house, many of them with guns drawn, some of them with guns outside with armor-looking vehicles. And the attorneys for Mr. Hawk, by the way, said they were already aware that he was going to be arrested, and they had already sent an email to the FBI saying, let us know and we will bring Mark Hawk in at your convenience. But instead of allowing Mr. Hawk an opportunity to turn himself in, they came out with their guns and raided his home. And this is over a pushing incident. So they're not really looking for a gun. I mean, my God, what are they hoping to find over a pushing incident in somebody's home with seven kids? Why risk terrifying those seven kids over a shoving incident outside of an abortion clinic? I just don't see these strict standards always being applied. What you're talking about now, though, is a question of procedure. Now, I, I, I'm not the FBI's lawyer, so I don't really want to find myself having them be my client right now. But let me be, let me be their attorney for a moment and, and answer your question in the way I think that they would answer it. Number one, that's the way they do almost every raid I have ever seen anywhere ever. When they do a raid, they do it with what I think is like the general Powell, Powell doctrine of what, the way you fight a war. You go all in and you don't take any chances, period. And I have seen that across the board for drug cases, for fraud, for small things. So the FBI has a very strict policy on the way they do it. And that, what you've just described, is what I have seen in every FBI case I've ever seen. Now, let me go to number two. Your second part of that is, why didn't they let him turn him in? Well, that I don't know. I don't have an answer to because a lot of a lot of times a U.S. attorney and the FBI will allow me to walk my client in because it's easier, it's safer, there's no risk, they know where he is, he's not a guy that's of any danger to anybody, we all know what's going on, and, and I have been afforded that courtesy many, many times from many agents. Sometimes, and I understand this, they can't afford me that courtesy because the crime is of such that they're worried about an, a, a, a person escaping. And you can understand that too. If, 
if we had some kind of guy who was a, you know, had tons of child porn and he escaped out of the country, you know, and they didn't arrest him, we would be, you and I would be bothered by that. But the last one is the last part of this is what you said is why this pastor, why this guy, I don't know the case, so I won't speak to it. I will just simply say what you've described sounds like the policy of almost every arrest I've ever heard where they didn't let me walk him in. And I don't know why they didn't let me let him walk him in. Sounds like they should have done that one, but I don't know. Well, when you look at some of the cases that have been publicized out there, the raid on James O'Keefe's home because of a, he received a diary from a woman, and that diary belonged, by the way, to Joe Biden's daughter. When you look at the case of Mr. Hawk out in Pennsylvania over a shoving incident outside of an abortion clinic and the overboard that seems to have taken place on behalf of the FBI to get into these people's homes, it just seems to me and to a lot of other people that this is going to have a chilling effect on conservative Americans and make them scared to speak up or engage in activism out of fear their homes are going to get raided. Now, some might suspect that this is their intentional point to chill their speech. If you cross our political line, we are going to come after you. We will never charge you. We will threaten you with weapons. We will take what's in your house. We will own what's in your home and you're not going to get it back. And that's the risk you take if you end up on our bad side. I, I, I would say to you on that subject, knowing, knowing a lot of FBI agents in my career, having dealt with them a lot, knowing a lot of U.S. attorneys, most of them are line workers. And what I mean by that is that they're career agents and they're career attorneys. They wake up every day and go to work and try to do their job. And the problem with their job is they don't change somebody at back east changes and they change every four years so while i hear what you're saying about this chilling effect let me tell you what happens to that fbi agent if he does that when the powers shift and when the powers do shift and they will shift they lose their jobs and so i don't know that there's that many that are willing to take that risk let me tell you i have had many conversations with fbi agents who disagree politically with either side of the spectrum. They don't do it openly and they try not to let it interfere their job. But the line agents, the ones that are out there, the sergeants and the, the corporals and the and the and the and the privates, the young lawyer the young lawyers and the young agents, they're working hard to try to do it right. Now, can somebody take advantage? I'm certain that they can. Can somebody politically do something? Certainly they can. But I'll answer your question this way. If we don't stand up to people and if we don't stand up for our rights in courtrooms, then maybe you're right. There will be a chilling effect. But there will also be a chilling effect if we exaggerate things and make people afraid of things they shouldn't be afraid of. And I'll leave you with one more example. I have fought police officers my whole life, but I would never argue for defunding the police. I want them out there. I want them doing their job. I just want them to be careful and do it correctly and allow me the dignity and the responsibility to fulfill my constitutional obligation to challenge them from time to time when I don't think they got it right. And that's the way it goes. And, and they will have to face the likes of somebody like me if they don't get it right. And, and we, will, we will, on the street, they may be better, but in the courtroom, they are not. They are not. And, and, and that is our home, and that is where the law is practiced, and that is ultimately where all of these questions are resolved. Now, did they take time? Sometimes way too long. 
sometimes too long. But ultimately, if you're going to take somebody's liberty, it's going to have to go through the Constitution and somebody like me. And we are not going to make it easy on you. I understand everything you're saying. And I know in general, this is how the FBI operates. And it comes as no surprise, I'm sure, to anybody out there. But on the other hand, this does seem to be sending a very clear message out to people to be very worried, wary of what you say, of what you do, because the FBI might be at your house when you wake up for your morning coffee. So those people that were arrested during the Stop the Steal rally, what typically happens to that person after they are arrested? I, I love this question. You and I could do an interview just on this. Let me answer this with, with two parts. First of all, I want you to know something that I think will help you and your, your listeners down the road. The January 6th case is, is an aberration in every way from the daily practice of the law that we all function within. It's, it's unique. It's different in every way possible. It's unique. We're still following the procedures, and we're still working hard to get it right. And even the U.S. attorneys I've dealt with have been very, very diligent to uphold the rules of law, and the judges have been exceptionally careful. I, you can't, I can't compliment them enough for their hard work on these cases because it's difficult. But let me answer now the second part of that question, even though the, I think the first part wasn't totally a question. Let, here's the procedure of what happens. So let's say somebody gets arrested uh, with one of those raids, okay? Um, they, will be, they will be frisked, checked to see if they have anything on them. They'll be handcuffed, never in the front, always behind, not like in the TV where they're walking out like that. It's behind, and it's uncomfortable, and sometimes, you know, a, a very aggressive officer might cuff those too hard, and it, it's uncomfortable. I, I don't like it. We, 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 we see that a little bit too much. But then again, you have people that fight these officers, and will fight them pretty hard, and we don't like that either. Then they get taken down to the, 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 uh, the jail, or in some cases directly to the courthouse jail, where they will be in front of a judge usually within four or five hours from their arrest. Now, sometimes up to three days. They get 72 hours to hold them before they go before a judge. Most of the time when somebody's arrested, it's at 6 a.m., and most of the time I'm in court by 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, they love to come at 6 a.m. I, I, I think that donut shops and coffee shops are for FBI agents at 5 in the morning. So then... The next thing that, they, that happens is, is that there's an arraignment or a bail discussion and we enter a plea of not guilty and we begin to receive the discovery. At the same time, we'll talk about bail. Now, bail is a really interesting subject. Um, and let's just assume for a minute that they don't get bail. So the, bail, the person that gets out on bail, they go home that day and we begin to fight their case. They're out, out on, on free to, to, to live with certain conditions and off we go. Let's talk about the other guy that goes in. Now, if he has a lawyer, his lawyer is, is there and fighting. If he doesn't, he's appointed a lawyer. Let's talk about January 6th there for a second, if that's okay. The Federal Public Defender's Office, who are very, you know, they might be a little bit of a liberal group in their mind in, in, in most of them that I've known. Let me tell you something. They are absolutely warriors on this January 6th case. They have led the fight in every way possible, and they have earned their stripes about proving that they might have a liberal mindset, but they do not put up with BS from the government. They have done everything they can to challenge this on every level, and it has been exceptional lawyering. 
uh, exceptional loins, some of the best I've ever seen. Um, but they can't take every case because they end up with conflicts. So they have to assign them out to lawyers who are appointed by the court um, from around the country. I, I was not appointed, um, but I have been on, on occasion. And judges will appoint lawyers to handle a case. Now, I think if, if I can keep going for a minute, then they're in custody. And uh, it, it now becomes an uncomfortable problem because this case is going to move at a, at, a, at a speed that constitutionally is supposed to move quickly. In the case of the January 6th cases, there's been so much evidence that it's not moved particularly quickly. Um, and some of these people have languished in jail, and we have fought battles to get them out. And there was some early rulings that said you've you got to let these people out, and some people were not let out, and then some people were let out and did stupid things and went back in. You know, uh, I mean, they acted like they were out, and then they acted like characters, and they're back in custody, and probably rightfully so. Uh, you need to be on your best behavior when you're let out. But when you're in custody, uh, you know, you're in a jail cell, and... It, it's a, it can be a hard, long wait while you're waiting for justice. And I, I, I will tell you, I don't like it uh, at all. Um, but it is, the, it is the rules that which we follow. And some people do probably need to be in custody while they await their trial. I mean, think of a person that commits a murder. We don't want them out running around. You know, now, maybe they're innocent. I once had a client who was in for 845 days before I won her acquittal. Not guilty, walked her out the door, but I couldn't get her out. And I'll tell you, those 845 days, I tried everything I could do to get her into a courtroom. And the circumstances were against us. And that's a hard story. You know, that's a hard, hard story. And I don't like it. What I guess I'm trying to do is get rid of some of the Hollywoodish idea of what it's really like to be in jail. Because I watch some of these programs and I'm like, I can't believe they're giving people the impression that this stuff is that easy once you get locked up because it's not. One of the things that always just gets me is that they always get to visit relatives whenever they want. And that's just nonsense, isn't it? Yeah, it's nonsense. Look, okay, so you want a day in the life of a, of a, of a prisoner. I will start with this. Uh, I've been in a lot of jails uh, throughout my career to meet with my clients, so I have seen a vast majority. And we need to start with this understanding. When you're in a holding cell or a holding detention center waiting trial or waiting the, uh, the resolution of your case, that's usually very different than when you're finally sentenced and set off to state prison somewhere or a federal penitentiary. Um, so let's talk to the first one when you're just taken into custody and you're holding. Some of this can be the hardest time my clients will ever do. I have had clients that were literally in a 12 by 15 foot room with just a little tiny window looking out the door for 24 hours a day with maybe 30 minutes a day to come out. They, they bring them their food. They keep them in there. It's, it, it's, it's a real problem, and, I, and it's a fight that we have lost in trying to get judges to let that stop. Uh, and it's ugly. Sometimes you're in a day room where you're in your cell at night and they open up the day room and you're all out there and you can kind of come out and have some group tables and you talk to other inmates. And then at the end of the day, you go back to your cell and usually you're in a two-man cell and you're, you, 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 know, you go in your cell and they shut the doors. As far as visiting your family, usually they have a very limited visiting day. It's almost always through glass on a phone and 
Uh, I have been in, sometimes at the jails when the line's wrapped around the block to come see, you know, your husband or your father. And I've seen many little girls through a, through a glass, you know, trying to touch their daddy um, while they're in custody. And, and again, some of these people maybe deserve the time that they're getting. Some are still waiting to fight it. But they're still somebody's dad. And it's still a little bit touching. But it's not like Hollywood. And you're not hugging them. That's for doggone sure. Um, now, one last little thing that I would say is if you ever have a family member in jail is make sure you put money on their books. Because if you don't have a little money on your books, you can't buy a toothbrush, you can't buy a pillow, you can't buy some soap sometimes, and you certainly can't buy a few little treats that make that hard time a little bit happier. Um, I have a kind of a funny story about a client once who had no money, and I was appointed to handle his case many years ago. He was from the South. And somehow he had figured out how to crease other inmates' uh, jumpsuits so they had a little crease and he would get a little candy bar every time he creased somebody's suit to try to make them look a little more stylish i have no idea why anybody wanted to be have their jumpsuit with a little crease but you'd see the guys come in every day and they'd all have the crease and i think hey my client got another candy bar but that's a it's a you know a friendly story but you know that's sometimes all you can do to survive is whatever you can while you're in custody well, for these J6 detainees, and I'm going to call them detainees because they haven't Agreed. been convicted of Agreed. anything yet, the process itself is huge, right? I mean, the government is sitting on a ton of information that it has to make available to every one of these attorneys. And I think there's been some 800 arrests. Probably some attorneys are handling more than one client at a time. So the Department of Justice attorneys, they're working with some 700 different attorneys around the country. And they have to abide by the Brady Rule. I'm sure many of our listeners and viewers would like to know exactly what that is. What is the Brady Rule? Uh, Brady was a case that happened uh, many years ago, which said that if the prosecution is to, comes into evidence that's exculpatory, really in almost any possible way, they have to turn it over to me. We call it discovery. Um, in, in the law. And what discovery is, is when you have your case and I have my case, we have to share information. Now, in a civil case, I have to share everything I have with you and you have to share everything you have with me. And we have a whole procedure, depositions, interrogatories, questions and answers that we can go through to get to the bottom line. In criminal law, it doesn't work like that. Rule number one is the government has to give me what they have. And Brady material means that if you have something that even could look like it would make my client innocent, you got to turn it over to me. I, on the other hand, don't, get, don't have to turn over anything to you generally until I'm getting ready to go to trial. So I have a right to keep my evidence kind of carefully close to the vest until I'm ready to go to trial or I'm ready to call a witness. It's a li that's a little simplistic what I'm saying, but that's kind of the rough plan. And Brady is that... that interesting evidence that sometimes might not initially seem part of the case. I'll give you an example. May I? An example might be, so let's say uh, uh, one of the defendants is going up the West staircase at the, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the Capitol. And the cameras all are looking at the West case, and they have 20 videos of him walking up the West staircase. Do they have to give me the video on the north side that's on the other side that doesn't see anything or doesn't have anything to do with him? 
Well, maybe not because it doesn't have anything to do with him. But what if it does? What if when he was over on the north side, he talked to somebody and there's just a two-second clip that indicates something that I was trying to prove that would exonerate my client? So they've got to turn that over because they don't want to run the risk of not giving me information that will later result in the case being overturned. So as a pretty strong general rule, especially with experienced prosecutors, they turn over the stuff. We get the goods. Um, they, They don't want to hide the ball. That's a dangerous game for a prosecutor to play. Sometimes younger lawyers might have a little bit of that youthful energy that, you know, young people often have in a profession. But the seasoned lawyers are going to turn it over because they're not going to take the chance of fighting a whole case out only to have it overturned on some stupid video that they didn't give me of the north side of the building that, you know, may or may not have even won the case. In the case of January 6th, you have cameras all over the place. You have the Capitol cameras. You have cameras that people are holding. You have body-worn camera. You have sky footage. You have, I mean, the list goes on, right? They, every single inch of that that they get, they got to turn over to me so that I can make sure that there's nothing in there that would exonerate my client. So that's Brady in terms of the J6. Well, you know, there was a case in California where the FBI misled a judge. The judge said that he was misled. And I think it was in Beverly Hills at the private vault store. And they went in and raided 1,400 safe deposit boxes of basically innocent Americans, took them back with them, and opened them all up. And they did it under a false warrant. This stuff, well, it happens. I mean, that's coming from a judge. It does. And look, if you want a criticism here, I'll give it to you. The Patriot Act that we passed back in 2002 was designed to help us protect from terrorism. And I think that the lack of terroristic events that have happened since 9-11, I mean, there have been things, but it hasn't been like it could have been, have probably been, you know, in partly protected from the Patriot Act. But I think it's also made it possible for Americans to be viewed by our own people. And I, I don't like it. I, I don't like it. And once upon a time, I believe there was an ACLU who you may never have liked, but fought these battles against these people. And I don't know that they're on the front line like they used to be against these things. Maybe they are. I just don't hear or see them like I used to. And uh, it kind of feels like that those battles have been kind of conceded. And I'll give you two reasons. The first reason is conservatives don't generally want to give up the idea of a powerful law enforcement. You know, your, your kind of questions are kind of leading down the road of, hey, our law enforcement has gone too far. But I can't imagine the conservator listener wants the law enforcement to be less powerful. They want a law enforcement that can do their job and can, when bad people are doing bad things, and there are many, many bad people doing bad things, they want them to be arrested and taken in and properly processed, given due process, fight their case, and if convicted, sent away for an appropriate amount of time. But I do think Americans, even though they want a strong, aggressive law enforcement, they also want to require that law enforcement does not violate their constitutional rights in doing their job. And if they start violating the constitutional rights of Americans, I think the public will say somebody's head has got to roll. Maybe not the entire FBI, 
maybe not the entire DOJ or Homeland Security, but someone at the top, their heads have got to start rolling because they are now violating time-honored First Amendment and other constitutional rights that protect American citizens from this type of law enforcement overreach. I can think of, as I sit here right now, and I will absolutely not name names, but I can think of at least five prosecutors and a couple of, eight, uh, well, police officers who I personally knew and know who were taken down because of their improper behavior as lawyers or, or investigators. Um, terminated. Terminated. And I can think of, and, and, and a couple of them probably should have gone. I, I, I think of one specific attorney who, you know, he just, period. Uh, others, you know, it was a little monkey business, and I think it was political. I think of one gentleman who was an exceptional lawyer, liked by everybody and trusted by everybody, who got caught in a political thing, who was given a case to prosecute it, handled it the best he could, and when it didn't turn out, they put his head on the block. So I do think that there is, you know, a balance here. But I want you to remember something, because this is really important. What you keep bringing back to is the executive branch acting out of line, Okay. What do we do when the executive branch acts out of line? Well, we do two things. One, we vote them out of office, which is sometimes harder to do than it looks. But it happens because in our lifetime, we've seen many people come and go. Okay, So we vote them out of office. Or second, they got to come to court and prove it up. And I am telling you, these federal judges, the 640-plus federal judges who all have the power of the United States of America... Do not screw around. I do not screw around with these judges. These are smart, powerful, independent-minded people that sit on the judiciary, and they, they will call balls and strikes however they see them coming in, and they do not vary from that. Now, I think that they do have sides. I think that some are a little bit more this way and some are a little bit more that way. But within the range... I don't see many that go outside. And when they do, people like you usually call them on it. You mentioned that when January 6th detainees were arrested, they will either be appointed in an attorney, or if they have their own attorney, they can, of course, rely on a personal attorney. But what is the actual cost there? What are the price ranges that these detainees can expect to pay to prove that they are innocent and can actually succeed in a court of law? I, uh, Martin, this is a really, really wise and complex question. Let me start with th this first answer to this, even though you didn't ask this, I want to answer this this way. People ask me all the time, how do you defend those guilty people? Uh, I, I mostly don't even talk about that anymore because I know who I am and I know what my constitutional requirements are. And I know that my job is to defend the Constitution by defending my client and that every man or woman that ever went and died fighting for our country probably didn't understand that one of the things that they were fighting for was the right for a person like me to exist, to protect the rights of one. Sometimes it is literally me and my client against 350 million Americans. And my forefathers, your forefathers, saw fit to give me that job. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability every single time without variance because I know what's on the line. Now, part two of that is what does it cost? Well, 
That's a tricky question because lawyers have a, a price range that can go anywhere from $100 an hour to, believe it or not, and this is shocking, $1,000 to an, an hour. And sometimes you take your appointed lawyer and you do what you can, and sometimes you hire a lawyer because you want that person who's going to care. What really, quite honestly, when capitalism kicks in, I think you care a tiny bit more when your client's paying you. Maybe, I hope not. I hope I always care just as much, but I'm talking generally. I know that when I have pro bono clients, I fight just as hard, but you know, you, 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 you pay your lawyer and you pick any, you, you expect them to pick up your call on Saturday afternoon. Um, so what does it cost somebody? It could cost anywhere from a couple thousand dollars during the investigation to if it goes to trial in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, what about when they're innocent? To that, I can only say our system doesn't have a remedy for that. It doesn't. And what I tell my clients ultimately is this. My job is to get you out of the clutches of the government. It is to do what I can to process your case in the most judicial, constitutional, legal, factual way I can to get you out of this whether you're guilty and you're trying to plead guilty and take responsibility or whether you're innocent. And this is what I started with. People say, how do you defend a guilty person? Guilty people are easy. You do your job and you make sure that they're properly treated throughout the entire system. What will rip your heart out as a defense attorney is when you believe your client is truly innocent. That will keep you up at night and you won't sleep because you'll say, there but for the grace of God go any one of us. Because all of us, please, if you don't hear anything I say today, this is what I wish people would hear. Every one of us can promise not to break the law, but none of us can promise to not be falsely accused of breaking the law. That's a real big difference. And I'll tell you, John Adams set the standard for this about 260 years ago when he fought for the British militia in the so-called Boston Massacre. Uh, he defended the British, and he won that case. And he said that had he not won that case, it would have been a greater stain on the United States of America than the Salem witch trials. Sometimes you just got to put your, your nose to the grindstone and get to work. That's what it takes to defend the Constitution. So I want to conclude this conversation, which has been absolutely spectacular, with perhaps a final thought that you have in addressing the concerns of people out there who are becoming quite nervous about the weaponization of the FBI and the DOJ. I have my opinion, but I want you to give your opinion on how to address those concerns. Well, the first thing uh, is, is always the easiest answer. Don't break the law. <laughs> you know, look, I hear people all the time saying, hey, my house was you know, broken into by the police or they did this or they did that. And I always think of the comedian who says, you want to avoid police contact? Don't break the law. Now, the second one is, more to your question is, how do I push the limits of challenging what I think is a dangerous trend in the government? And it really becomes difficult when we watch people that we think on TV are being treated differently than perhaps your side. For example, I know that one of the things that many of the January 6th defendants said was, why am I being treated different than those people in Portland that were terrorizing the courthouse? Why is that any different, uh, right? I mean, you've certainly heard that. Well, first of all, let me tell you, 
Lots of people were prosecuted in Portland. Lots. A lot of people were prosecuted in Portland. Should there have been more? Probably. Probably. I can't speak to Portland politics. I don't live in Portland. I don't know that I, it's a lovely place, but I don't know that I would, you know, see eye to eye with some of the way they view the world. Um, but, you know, they chose not to prosecute a lot of those people. Um, the next answer is, if you're out there challenging it, you know what? Sometimes what happens when you put yourself on the line is you might become the subject of political problems. And I, I don't want to be too religious about this, but I always think back to the analogies of, of we find sometimes in the Bible. Here you had this individual who people knew and believed was the son of God. And he was being falsely accused and falsely prosecuted. But it didn't stop him from delivering his message. It just didn't. And he kept going to work every day. Every day. And I think, I'm just going to guess here, but he probably knew he was going to be falsely prosecuted eventually. You know, But he went to work and he preached his message. And part of that message was love and compassion. And I think part of it was resilience and determination to get the job done, even though those weren't exactly the words that were spoken. So I like that analogy because I think we need to remember that as Americans, we have a job. And I'll leave you with this thought on that. No one ever says to me when they find out I'm a criminal defense attorney that I'm all of a sudden their best friend. It's a lonely job. I have to fight these things every day of my life. And sometimes it can be a place where you kind of sit all alone in the courtroom because Everybody's looking at your client like a bad guy until they need me, until you're the one who's made a mistake or is accused. Then we become the most important people in your life. So if you're going to take chances and you're going to go out there and stand your ground, just know this. There are a lot of us who were born from the Sixth Amendment that believe heavily, heavily in our duty, our responsibility, and our privilege to be criminal defense attorneys to spend every day of our life challenging the man in every way we can to make sure that justice is done and that no one ever spends one more day of j in jail than necessary. Sometimes we don't always get our way. Sometimes the government is a big, bad, powerful beast. But I'm going to tell you, to this day, after 30 years of doing this, I am absolutely convinced that our forefathers were genius in the constitutional protections that they put in place, the checks and balances of a court that's independent, and a jury that ultimately decides everything. The legislature can pass a law. The government, the executive branch, the FBI can weaponize themselves, as you, as you called it, and go out and, and do whatever they're going to do. And a judge can make rulings, but it's going to take 12 people like you and me to ultimately ratify all of their decisions. There is no other way. No other way. So you want to know how to fight this battle? Let's start teaching our kids to become great defense attorneys. Once upon a time, there were Perry Masons in the world. And we believed and we looked up to the Atticus Finch and the, and the Perry Mason and even the Matlocks. We've kind of gone away from that. Our best young lawyers should be saying, how do I defend the Constitution by making sure these things don't happen? And I'll tell you, when the criminal defense bar is tough, nobody gets away with anything. Nobody. Because we're standing right there, ready to call you out on all of it. And I got to leave you with this thought. I know a lot of criminal defense attorneys, and we're pretty dang good. 
they're good. They are good lawyers who can make a heck of a lot more money sitting in a civil court trying cases with a car accident. But they're out there fighting for people who are guilty and innocent, and they're doing their job every day. That's how you get out and fight the man. Well, that's a wrap for us today, and we really appreciate hearing from Mr. Hewis. So if you've enjoyed this deep track episode of Shout Out Patriots, please share it with your friends, like it, give us some feedback, put some comments in the comment section. I want to hear back from you. Thank you, and God bless.